What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Good morning, everybody. My name is Jefferson Smith. Honored to be sitting in for Tom Hartman today. And good morning, priceless people. I've been preparing. We've got some good stuff coming up. Some stuff that's not as good, but is important. And hopefully engaging, hopefully edifying, hopefully will make us a little bit stronger rather than a lot worse. It's Pride Month. Mainstream media has been missing it largely. I hope we don't miss it largely. If we're in this together, if what we get together in this show to do is to help bend the arc of history towards justice and we look for the civil rights battles that remain in our world, this is one for which there has been meaningful progress and which we should take great pride in that as well. I want to start with something that I don't think should be very controversial, but I fear that it will be. What I am saying should be as pablum, as being in favor of healthy apple pie. I worry, however, it's going to be a little bit controversial. It should not be, in my judgment, particularly arguable. It should not be a hot take. But I think it does dip into hot take territory. It shouldn't upset any of you. I am worried that it will upset some of you. I fear it will. Trump has been visiting the United Kingdom. Basically, so Theresa May could make friends with Nigel Farage and continue to be prime minister. It turns out bringing Donald Trump to the United Kingdom, to England, is going to be one of the last significant things that Theresa May does as prime minister. And as we see the pomp, as we see the circumstance, whose side are we on? Are we on Theresa May's side? Probably not on Nigel Farage's side. Are we on Meghan Markle's side? She got called nasty. Are we on Prince Harry's side? Are we on Camilla's side when she winked? Are we on the Queen's side? Who some people are presumably on the Trump family side? The New York Times did a story about how the, the New York Times did a story about how the Trump family sees an opportunity to supplant the Kennedys as American aristocracy. Whose side are we on? Are we on the Kennedy side? My take is I'm opposed to all that stuff. A pox on all of the houses. I'm opposed to the pomp and the circumstance. Now, let's be clear. Monarchy is very impressive. It took four days to set the table. That's very impressive. I don't think Americans make their bed four days a month. I think that bed making has gone down significantly in the United States. I used to be a bed maker. I am no longer a bed maker. I'm not saying I'm the canary in the coal mine. I just don't think I'm alone. But I am pro-democracy. There is something awesome about dynastic wealth and power. 
awesome in its truest sense. Monarchical displays inspire awe. The pageantry, the story, cloaking itself as meaning. I want to get invited to the parties, the real society, the ultimate cool kids. The Lannisters are so beautiful. The Targaryens are so magical and scary. But count me with Samuel Tarly, who wants the people to decide. Sorry, Prince Charles. Sorry, Daenerys. And yes, sorry, Queen Elizabeth, who dazzles with comportment and manners and taste and discipline. What I just said should not be controversial. But a base note beneath the cacophonous treble of the glitz and the Trump statue and made out of inflated material that can tweet with its inflated small giant hand to remind ourselves that amidst all of these sides, the real side we are on, or at least the side I am on, is democracy's side. Is that here the people decide. Here inherited power is the power with the least moral authority, the least virtue, the least justification, usually the least best results. My message to Prince William, I wanted to meet the guy. I wanted to say it friendly. He seems like a wonderful person. Princess Diana seemed like a wonderful person. My message to Prince William, upon your ascendance, abdicate the crown. Abolish the monarchy. Put in place additional pro-democracy measures in Great Britain. Use that moral authority to fight for real problems. Wealth disparities, climate change. Leave a legacy like Gandhi. One that will take 80 years after your death to crack and even larger and longer to tear asunder. Champion an idea, an idea that can be more powerful than inheritance. Be the last great king of England by being the last king of England. It's good to have you here. It's good to be here. It's an honor to be here. In this maybe little bit, if we can pull it off, oasis of democracy amidst the rise of oligarchy and kleptocracy. And while we watch this amazing display of a table that took four days to set, I don't spend four days to find the next Ikea couch to watch the next Hulu series that I binge. It's very impressive. But I think that is more impressive is when we get together to solve problems. When we decide the revolution was fought, not because we were greedy, not because we wanted to save on our taxes. We fought a revolution because the idea of who is in charge should be based on who the people decide is in charge. I don't know. Maybe that's pablum too. I wish it were strictly pablum. But I am reminded by this as we think about the large historical trends. Late 1770s, early 1780s, the Revolutionary War. The world, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe, waking up from a post-Magna Carta residue still of monarchical ideology. 80 years later, the U.S. Civil War, when this country had been forgetting, too many in this country had been forgetting the lessons of how hard it was to unite this country. At the same time, Bismarck unified Germany. Eight years after that, World War II. Also, independence in India. Also, Gandhi's death. Now we're 80 years after that. What lessons are we forgetting? What do we have to remember? I'm Jeff, this is Tom Show. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're on Free Speech TV. I'm Jeff Sherrill from Philadelphia. You win the prize as the first caller. <laughs> hey, Jefferson, it's good to see you back substituting for Tom. It's always enjoyable. You're Appreciate it. Okay, happy Pride Month, and I'm glad you brought up Pride. I plan to make new memories at the Reclaim Pride March, June 30th, in New York City. Pride has gone very commercial in New York over the past few years. 
with corporate sponsors, and it's become less political, less intersectionality with other issues, and people organizing a Reclaim Pride march to take to the streets on June 30th, starting at the original Stonewall Bar. It is Stonewall 50. It's the 50th anniversary of Stonewall. And that is in the East Village. It'll convene at 9.30. So thanks for the opportunity to promote No, I'm it. glad you plugged it, Cheryl. It's interesting. Yeah, who was I just reading? And I didn't see the full analysis of how many of the companies who are marching in pride have spent the lion's share of their political contributions on anti-LGBT politicians and politicians who have been opposed to same-sex marriage, who have been opposed to laws to make discrimination illegal in housing and work choices, decisions rather. It reminds me a little bit of May Day, people trying to reclaim May Day for workers' movements. It reminds me also, here's a weird one, but like so many of our best pro-social, pro-human movements can be co-opted for commerce. I'm reminded of William Morris, the founder of the arts and crafts movement, and William Morris was a socialist, and William Morris's writings were talking about we've got to make sure that how we think about art, how we think about architecture is for people, not merely for commerce, and we have to fight for equality in all things. And, you know, now you say arts and crafts movement, and probably what that means is a well-to-do neighborhood in a well-to-do town entirely untethered from the argument that was happening at the turn of the last century, trying to wake up both from an industrial era that was building wealth disparities and a monarchical era. So I appreciate you reclaiming stuff for the people for the people. Well, thank you. Be there, be square. (laughs) I do have this thing in my craw about the monarchy. When I watch... uh, Upstairs, downstairs TV shows. I root for change of the fundamental system. Same thing when I watch state dinners. But I am interested in a number of things, including the number of debates that are happening in the United Kingdom, and they go beyond Brexit. And it's one of the best things that England ever did, and that was, in fact, the National Health Service. Uh, Brad is calling from Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Brad, how you doing? Hi, Jefferson. I'm glad to be on the air. My question is, and who does Donald Trump think he is to be telling another nation or even implying what kind of health service they should have? Now, what's democracy? Leave those nations, any of them, alone. Let them decide. Part of democracy is live and let live. And as long as they're not stepping on your toes, and all he's seen is an economic opportunity. My second point is this. God is about love. It is far more of a sin in my mind that heterosexuals engage in using and abusive behavior than two men, women, whatever, engaging in a relationship out of love. God is about love. God is about wanting us to have freedom to choose our own spiritual and ultimate fate. Agree completely. Appreciate the call. On the second thing, all I'll do is agree. I may cite back to it a little bit later, Brad. I do want to respond to the comment about health care. It doesn't surprise me at all that Donald Trump is engaging in an international debate on health care on foreign soil. Because I do think we have to do some dot connecting. If we think that the recent election in India, where the party that spawned from the movement that is the same movement whose member killed Gandhi and whose founder was fomenting opposition to peaceful ideas and opposition to Gandhi himself. And that that movement has now, which was thrown into the dustbin of the margins in the late 1940s, is now not only ascendant, but is the significant majority in India. If we think that is entirely disconnected 
from Brexit. If we think that is entirely disconnected from Steve Bannon's efforts in building white nationalist operations in other European countries, if we think that is totally divorced from Benjamin Netanyahu and the policies that he is trying to make majority policies in Israel, a country that has been the leader of the kibbutz, if we think that is divorced from the arguments that Mercer was, we now forget about him a little bit, he was the biggest Republican donor not that long ago, who was hopping on airplanes that he owned, presumably, in order to foment an international movement against the post-World War II rough consensus. And the way Donald Trump got elected was in part with the help of international players who were trying to disrupt that consensus, including the Russian government, who also don't really like the idea of democracy ascendance and of pluralism as a dominating idea. The idea that one dominant idea should not so fundamentally dominate all others. So it's almost his duty as a member of that team for Trump to, when he goes to another country, say, oh, instead of everybody in the United States realizing they got it way better in England with healthcare, way better. I've got to try to go there and tell them that we've got it better in the United States, even though we've got more money per capita and worse health even though we've got more profits in the healthcare service, but less service. Even though we've got a healthcare system that is now has significantly greater access thanks to Obamacare, still hasn't figured out sufficiently healthcare costs. England has that much figured out, except much more figured out, except they've been gutting it. Of course he's gonna do that, because what we're, we've gotta, the reason we've gotta lift our eyes just from the tweet of the day and connect some of the dots, just as we have to think about the base notes, not just the cacophonous trouble. We have to recognize that he is now part of an international movement, and I will say an un-American movement. I think it is time to reclaim patriotism because this idea is fundamentally un-American in the best and truest sense. Because what we indeed had revolution over was whether power should come from something like kleptocracy, or something like inheritance, or something like monarchy, or if power should come from people. That's the big idea. That's the big idea that Magna Carta was fighting for. That's the big idea we gotta fight for. If you're trying to fight for a healthcare system that is for people, rather than healthcare system that's merely for the few, it's the same fight. I'm gonna give my better money minute right now. Are we uh, heading for a recession? More and more predictions that we will have the Trump recession in 2020. Study, and I will cite the study, I think it was Harvard, I think I got it from the Harvard Business Journal. The companies that survived, that did okay during the last recession were those that saved money on capital expenditures, CapEx, saved money on labor costs. Bad news, by the way, for people who are in labor. And they're not just costs, but who invested in R&D. Well, humans can learn from that, both to be prepared for it, but also to realize what can we do during those times to learn to do R&D for ourselves. More on that in a little bit. This is the Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jeff. So it's the middle of the week, and, you know, as the week kind of goes on, particularly those, those people who, uh, you know, work in a physical way for a living, although I'll tell you, just sitting in a chair all day can be uh, kind of draining on your muscles and your back and stuff. Uh, you know, you reach a point where I'd like something that's a potent pain reliever and an anti-inflammatory that's not going to wipe out my kidneys or get me addicted or something like that. And uh, what, I, what I found is that CBD oil does the trick. It's non-intoxicating. You get the health benefits of cannabinoids. It's non-toxic, and it's a pain reliever. And the best one I've found in the marketplace is New Leaf Naturals. That's N-U leaf naturals they spell it nuleafnaturals.com and they make a cbd oil it's 100 percent organic it's highly concentrated there's no additional additives it's grown right here in the united states the only ingredient is hemp so it remains in its most pure and simple form and to get 30 percent off you want to try this stuff out get, get a, a big discount 30 percent off and free shipping in the u.s when you go to nuleafnaturals.com, nuleafnaturals.com, and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, 
Got to do that to get that 30% discount. Go to New Leaf Naturals, NULeafNaturals.com, and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, for premium cannabinoid wellness. There's only one place, NewLeafNaturals.com. This is the Tom Hartman Program. For the Tom Hartman Book Club, our book today is How Wealth Rules the World, Saving Our Communities and Freedoms from the Dictatorship of Property by Ben G. Price, uh, with a blurb on the back from some guy named Tom Hartman. This is from the introduction, One Right to Rule Them All, The Dark Side of Property. Let's get it out in the open. The United States of America, nations that emulate its governing principles, are governed by a dictatorship of property. Is that plutocracy? Sure. But it goes deeper than that. The U.S. Constitution, as it was written and later interpreted by the Supreme Court, hijacked democratic rights that American revolutionaries thought they had won. The Federalists developed a whole system of law that serves the interests of wealth. Elements of that system include the following. State constitutions untethered from their revolutionary moorings. International trade agreements that supersede local, state, and federal laws. Regulations administered by an unrepresentative bureaucracy. Political parties that gerrymander legislative districts so that they can choose their voters rather than allowing voters to choose their representatives. Corporate property that the Supreme Court has declared to be persons with Bill of Rights protections. Federal and state statutes that privatize public governance and prohibit democratic limits on the uses of private fortunes. And local governments declared to be property of the state and made unavailable to communities for municipal lawmaking. We live deep within an undemocratic matrix of law that masquerades as a democratic republic while it legalizes an aristocracy of wealth. The U.S. Constitution was written by men who came from a uniformly privileged class. Charles Beard argued this point in his book, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. Beard analyzed the economic interests of those who met in secret to overturn the Articles of Confederation and concluded that the Federalists were motivated by economic self-interest to establish a form of government that would protect their wealth against an excess of democracy, as Alexander Hamilton put it. The Federalists who replaced the Articles with the U.S. Constitution were not fully aligned with the liberating agenda of commoners who risked their lives to throw off the hierarchical chains of Great Britain. They were wealthy men educated in British law with opinions that harmonized with aristocratic sentiments. When civil and human rights are deposited in property, that property is placed beyond the authority of the people to govern how it is used by its owner. This nullifies the majority's ability to decide directly or through elected representatives what public policy will be. As a result, we aren't allowed to resolve issues of immediate concern to every community. Even when we understand what needs to be done, we're often blocked. And then he goes through the whole list. Benji Price writes, How Wealth Rules the World. I may be coming to your city soon on our book tour for The Hidden History of Guns and the Second Amendment. I'll be in New York, Washington, D.C., Portland, Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco, Chicago, and Minneapolis. Here I come. More information is available at TomHartman.com. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, everybody. And hello to our friend Caroline Fredrickson, the president of the American Constitution Society, the author of The Democracy Fix for our folks on the screen. I will even show the book how to win the fight for fair rules, fair courts, and fair elections. The reason that we're so glad to have you is for many reasons, including the recent ProPublica article, helping to delineate a little bit what's going on with the Federalist Society. I want to make sure, first of all, that you're here with us. Caroline, can you hear me? I can hear you. Welcome. So I wanted to ask about the Federal Society, then also wanted to ask about the American Constitution Society. Let's start with just a quick introduction of the American Constitution Society, the organization that you lead, and then we can go to some of the genesis that was so important and so necessary. Absolutely. Well, so ACS is um, one of our nation's leading progressive legal organizations. Uh, we actually believe that the law should be a force for good in the lives of all people. And we have a national network of lawyers, law students, judges, scholars, and others who are dedicated to defending the meaning of the United States Constitution as it applies in the 21st century. And we are committed to advancing democracy, equality, and rule of law, and to guaranteeing that equal protection of the laws includes groups who were not previously included as the people under the Constitution. 
So we have a very different take from the groups on the right, and um, I'm eager to talk to you about what's going on and what people can do to make sure that we can actually fix our democracy. How significant is the Federal Society? They are extremely significant. One of the things people should be aware of is that as much attention as we spend inevitably on the craziness that's coming out of the White House and the president's tweets and his attacks on members of the royal family and all of the kind of distractions that we have, they have actually had an enormous impact, the White House and the Federalist Society working together in changing our courts into a real bulwark for right-wing activism. And what they're doing there is moving through their process a group of extremely right-wing individuals who believe that Roe versus Wade was wrongly decided, who think And you're an expert on guns, right? So who think the Second Amendment means that everything you want, any kind of armament you want to possess, you can have, that there are no limits, um, who believe that uh, gerrymandering is just fine, voter suppression is okay, um, and that plutocrats can buy our elections. That's their vision of our judiciary, and they're actually making it happen. And what's most real, you know, disturbing is that these are lifetime appointments. So as Trump fills the judiciary with this group of people, we can't just think that the next election is going to change it back. Why do you think the conservative movement has been more motivated in terms of their donor apparatus and in terms of their voters to focus on courts and elections than progressives have been? The history that I lay out in my book, The Democracy Fix, it really goes back to the early 70s. And there's a famous, or maybe infamous is a better way to describe it, memo called the Powell Memo, which was written by Lewis Powell, who, before he became Supreme Court Justice, was a big tobacco lawyer and very active with the Chamber of Commerce. What he was arguing was... Wasn't he corporate counsel for the Chamber of Commerce? He was active on all sorts of committees. He was not Not in-house at the Chamber, but because he was representing tobacco. Got it. (laughs) Philip Morris in particular. And so what he he argued was that he saw that the free enterprise system, you know, capitalism was under threat because some legal advocates and others had happened to start putting some constraints on their ability to sell cars that were incredibly dangerous, like Ralph Nader, for example, and they had to pay out damages and make their products better, and there was, an act, there was a lot of activism around the environment that was, again, also putting constraints on corporate America, not allowing them just to dump toxic waste everywhere. You know, and we passed the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. President Nixon actually even set up the EPA. So when he sent this memo to the Chamber of Commerce, he says, we need to do something about this. And what we need to do is collectively have an investment plan that's big money, where we, and he meant big corporations in America, join together and fund these institutions that are going to control power for the long term. And by institutions, meant, you know, organizations that would produce ideas, organizations that would produce people to run important infrastructure of government, so judicial pipeline, legal people who worked in legal jobs, but also other types of, um, of, of important positions, so a kind of a leadership development piece, and the media. And the Chamber of Commerce took it to heart. And they invested in a whole group of organizations, including the Federalist Society, the Heritage Foundation, ALEC, the infamous American Legislative Exchange Council, which drafts terrible legislation, stand your ground, and voter suppression bills, and, uh, and so forth. And so they moved forward with this. So one of the, his big points was that the courts really matter. And corporate America got that. Um, they were they were facing lawsuits, uh, class action lawsuits, and others because they were marketing dangerous products and they were polluting our our air and our water. And they actually rightly had to start being responsible for some of that or be held to account. And so they invested a lot of money in ensuring that the courts were a place that they could control. 
And so, you know, in part, this has been driven by big donor money, the Koch brothers. Um, they get it better than almost yeah, and, anybody. And on, on this program, there is, I know that uh, there is a pretty significant focus, even on the Palomo and even of the origins. And, 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 I, and I appreciate sort of your early 70s launch pad. That is also the sort of timeline, not just the Palomo for me, but the launch pad of so much of the modern conservative movement. Why, in your judgment, has it been? Is it just, well, there was a first mover and the second mover has been 40 years behind? Or why is it that whether you want to call it the organized left or whether you want to call it the Democratic Party, whether you want to call it the progressive movement, why, whether you want to just call it pro-democracy forces, have more taken courts for granted? Partly, I can see why uh, the Koch brothers, for instance, and another plug for Democracy and Change that also talks about the primacy of courts in conservative strategy, is they had the lesson of the Lochner era as a, as a mechanism by, you know, seeing courts as a mechanism by which anything that democracy made could be eliminated, could be torn asunder, could at least be blocked by a, by a right-wing conservative court. Uh, but it would, it would seem that the Warren court era would also give progressives a reminder of how important it is to have courts. Why do you think that there hasn't been, is, is it a funding challenge? What's the biggest challenge that ACS has or the progressives have or that pro-democracy folks have in catching up to the Federalist Society? Is it just funding? What is it? The wonderful thing about being on the left side of the spectrum is that we really represent America, but it means there's a lot more diversity, a lot more diversity of interests and demographic diversity. And as a result, there are a lot of issues that are sort of come to the fore that we have not done a good enough job at connecting to the courts. But we are not a top-down hierarchical movement. It poses its challenges in terms of having that kind of singular focus like they've had on the right. It's obviously, I prefer that we are much more diverse and much more bottom-up than top-down. But, you know, as anybody who runs an organization or thinks about sort of change, it's a lot harder to kind of, you know, as they say, herd the cats as opposed to the Koch brothers telling people what to do. And, you know, even if you look at just the funders on the right, you'll see that basically there's a small group at the top tell everybody else what to do. And they've coordinated. They all agree that these are their priorities and the strategy, and they go in and they go in big. Are you seeing now a greater awakening among pro-democracy voters and funders about the importance of the courts? I'm hoping that that answer is just an obvious <laughs> yes, making my question really stupid. But what signs are you seeing of an ascendant pro-democracy movement with respect to the judiciary? Um, well, it's it's not a stupid question because it's it's one that we haven't had as clear an answer for in the past as we do now. Um, the signs are, for number one, Donald Trump has shaken everything. Um, and I think his success in getting Gorsuch and Kavanaugh on the bench has been really shocking to a lot of people. I mean, Kavanaugh in particular. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We've been talking to Caroline Fredrickson. I'm Jefferson Smith, sitting in for Tom. Stephanie Miller here. If you watch 60 Minutes and you own a home, you just got very nervous. I did. The FBI's former head of cybercrimes warned homeowners that foreign and domestic thieves can steal your home and do it all online. That's because home titles and mortgages are kept in databases that can be hacked. If you have equity in your home, here's how they get you. They simply forge their name onto your home's title, use your home as collateral to borrow cash, and stick you with the payments. And no bank or identity theft program protects you. You need Home Title Lock, America's leading title and mortgage guardian. For pennies a day, Home Title Lock puts a virtual barrier around your home's title and mortgage. If cyber thieves tamper with it, we mobilize to help shut it down. You may already be a victim. Here's how to find out. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register for your free title scan and report. $100 value, free with sign-up. Don't let cyber thieves steal your home. Go to HomeTitleLock.com like I did. That's HomeTitleLock.com. One more time, that's HomeTitleLock.com. Back with Caroline Fredrickson from the American Constitution Society. The president, the August Archon of the American Constitution Society, a pro-democracy legal group. And you were saying in the wake of Kavanaugh and Gorsuch's appointments and confirmations that a lot of people are waking up. What are some of the signs you're seeing that people are waking up and what are they doing about it? What are you seeing sort of institutionally as people try to see the risk board of kind of political apparatus? 
Right. Well, so great question. So number one, the actual presidential candidates are really talking about this as an issue. You know, that's kind of pathetic that we note that. But, you know, I'm sorry in the past, you know, it, that hasn't really happened. I'm even though I think Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, you know, they're both lawyers and they both have a keen sense of the importance of the courts. They just didn't talk about it on their campaigns, even though I think for Hillary Clinton, there was a profound issue because Barack Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, had been blocked, hadn't even gotten a hearing. There was an opening on the court. So it's an issue that would have been, I think, galvanizing. But instead, she chose to run away from it. Uh, Barack Obama, when he was running, didn't talk about the court's and so, but now we have almost every presidential candidate not only talking about the dangers of a Trump court, but also talking about reforms that could be implemented because the court has gotten to be so far to the right and so overpowerful that many see it as a danger. It's sort of the whole idea of checks and balances and separation of powers has gotten out of whack because the Supreme Court has arrogated so much power to itself to check congressional actions, that is, the actions of the democratically elected branch. Yeah, and, th- and that um, to me is the... Shut down. Yeah, the good news may be opportunity, but the great threat is when presidential candidates, in my experience, in my memory, Democratic presidential candidates would talk about the courts, they would say, well, this is what, you know, they would bring up Roe versus Wade, they'd bring up choice. But it's so clear now that we're also talking about fundamental environmental protections. We're talking about, is there health care policy that Congress can set that will stick or will it be eliminated by courts? It's about voter access and whether or not that right-wing strategists will be able to block access to the polls from otherwise valid voters. It's about campaign finance and whether the campaign system or their entire system of democracy will be flooded and just entirely dominated, has been flooded, whether it be entirely dominated by secret money. I mean, it's essentially every issue. Am I an alarmist when I say that my fear is, in fact, another Lochner era, that is an era where we come out of our next recession, hopefully not a depression, trying to do stuff about it and then have an entrenched court that blocks democracy's efforts to solve common problems? I'm exactly with you. When I wake up in the middle of the night, these are the nightmares that have woken me up. I'm very afraid. Donald Trump's nominees will not say that they believe that Brown versus Board of Education was a properly decided court decision. That is truly shocking. Even George W. Bush's nominees, George H.W. Bush's nominees, Reagan's nominees would have always embraced Brown versus Board as one of the crowning jewels of the Supreme Court decision-making process. Caroline Fredrickson, thank you so much for joining us. American Constitution Society, the book is Democracy Fix. Really appreciate your work. It was great to be on. Thank you. This is Tom Hartman Show. I'm Jefferson Smith. Some of you have been very patient. Some of you wanted me to take me a task about my views of the British Constitution, my views about the Revolutionary War. You've been so patient. Now it is your opportunity to rip me to shreds, which I don't like. I'm very sensitive. But Mike from Lomita, California, go ahead. Yeah, well, Jefferson, you are true to your name in that you represent the views of an American Republican of the 1770s. However, I think you lack complete understanding of Northern European constitutional monarchies as they exist today. In the first place, do you know how much tourism, dollars, or lira, or yuan, or any other currencies are brought to Britain each year? Owing to the British monarchy. Yeah, I think I think people still go visit Tower of London and check out the and check out the crown jewels, even if the crown wasn't uh, wasn't still uh, well, subject I, I to primogeniture. I can only say that one morning. A lot of people go to Disneyland. Didn't take doesn't one, take monarchy for Disneyland. Yeah, but then it, it's not about a monarchy in the first place. One morning I tried to go jogging in Green Park, and it was later than usual time for it, and I got found myself in a mob. I mean, an absolutely astounding crowd because they were changing the guard, and all the tourists had shown up. It's a lot of money involved. In no, I, I know, and I'll give even a stronger argument in favor of it, and that is that one governance value that it has is it separates the real governance function, which is vested in Parliament, from the ceremonial function, which is vested in currently the Queen. And that is another advantage, and I get those advantages. For me, it's a critical principle, and it's not worth tourism dollars to sacrifice that principle. Let me do finish my point, Mike. And that principle is that
that power should not come primarily from inheritance. That, to me, is the bottom line view. Maybe a little bit. Maybe get some genes, maybe get some training, maybe get, maybe get a house, but that ultimately dominance in our culture and our society and our economy should not come from inherited power. And I think that that principle is worth the tourism dollars. I recognize I may be in the minority in the entire world to experience, but I do think that that's my principal view. Let me cut to the chase then. You suggested William should abolish the monarchy once he inherits. He lacks the power because the monarchy does not have the no, power. No, he'd have to, to he'd have to campaign for it. He'd have to he'd have to campaign for it. I mean, you open it up. It you would open take it up with Parliament by, to abolish no, I get the monarchy, that. and no, the monarchy exists by popular consent. No, I, I get that, but you you open it up with I think misestimating my understanding of British system. I recognize that he couldn't do it by fiat. I think he could do it with moral authority. I think that he could build the popularity necessary to work with Parliament to get rid of it. And I and I will say my tongue is a quarter in my cheek when I open up with saying that the important thing is to abolish a British monarchy. I understand that it's a ceremonial enterprise. And I also think that the fight in the world right now is about democracy, that the most important argument that is happening right now is from where and to whom should power vest, and that this is an opportunity to talk about that, and I just don't think the tourism is worth it. But I recognize that not everybody agrees with me, and I do appreciate your call, Mike. Well, it has very little to do with actual power. It has a lot more to do with ceremony and ritual and symbolism. And did, do you know... Exactly, exactly. Oh, Mike, oh, Mike, this is exactly right. This is exactly right. And this is why I am where I am. Is because the symbolism for me needs to be symbolism of the people. The symbolism for me, the thing that we should be visiting, the thing that we should be lauding, the thing that we should be praising and appreciating and watching the changing of the guard for, should be stuff about the people. Should not be about, oh, isn't it neat that King Henry VIII did this and this, and now we have Queen Elizabeth. And that's the thing, that, that's the story that we celebrate more than any other story. That's the thing that drives our tourism. That's the symbol that we cleave to. I want declarations of independence. I want symbolism, however imperfect, stories, however much oppression that they also include, that are still trying to figure out how we can bend our history towards justice. It is entirely the symbolism that is the thing that I'm hoping to change. But I do appreciate you calling me and making sure that I'm not missing stuff important. That if we disagree, it's strictly because we disagree. Grant from Kenmore, Washington, connecting the King of England and climate change. Go ahead, Grant. Although I'm usually opposed to some sort of authoritarian figure like a king ruling over me, I'm going to go against you and say that in this day and age, the king of England or maybe the emperor of Japan would be a good thing because they could put their foot down for a country and not be partisan to start the climate change process, start a Green New Deal in any country that has a king. I just, Grant, I just had a lengthy discussion with a dear friend, really smart cat. He's finishing his advanced economics degree in, in France right now. And we had a telephone debate, I probably should have recorded it, about whether there should be, in his words, not a king of England on climate change, but a climate Stalin, someone who would be disruptive, including violently disruptive, to address the problem of climate change. And we had a moral and strategic and governmental and historical debate. And I won't go through the whole thing right now, but I hear where you're coming from. I don't talk about democracy because I think it's so obvious. I don't think, I don't talk about it because I think everybody so clearly agrees that it's the way we should do everything or continue to do anything. I talk about it because to some degree I agree with Winston Churchill that it's lousy, but it's less lousy than all the other stuff. And that we have to figure out how democracy can work. And to strengthen the argument, heck yes, a monarchical system, or at least a dictatorial system, could have real advantages in addressing collective problems. And saying, okay, all of you mob of voters who want to continue to drive everything you're driving, as I do, do everything that you're doing, as I too often do, take all the planes you're taking, as I too often do, you want to live your same life, you want to pay your same taxes, you don't want the price of the gas pump to go up. You don't want to be bothered to put solar panels on your house. You don't want to change your energy usage. You want to live a simpler life. Okay, fine. Well, you don't get to decide anymore. It's going to be decided by a ruler, and that ruler might have a greater chance to address the problem. I don't disagree. It's, it is the strongest argument in favor of dictatorship is that a dictator can solve real problems even when the people are dumb 
or wrong or misled or selfish or short-term minded. But I feel about democracy the way I feel about freedom of speech. That most often, and maybe I just take it on faith, and maybe I'm wrong, which is why we take the calls, since you can tell me when I'm wrong, one of the reasons we take them, is that like freedom of speech, I think that hopefully, maybe it is just ideology and faith, the best answer to bad speech is more speech. Is addressing it, is making sure that platforms don't have to treat false speech the same way they deal with true speech. They don't have to deal with fighting words and fire in a crowded theater and stuff that's merely hurtful as real discourse. Don't have to pretend, don't have to pretend that purchase speech is the same thing as free speech. But nonetheless, my ideas, the best idea to beat a bad idea is a conversation about ideas and having a free flow of ideas. I feel the same way of democracy. That the best way to address the problems of democracy is addressing the problems of democracy, is more democracy, is addressing what's happening with voter suppression, is, happen is address what's happening in media, address what's happening with campaign finance, address what's happening with voter education, address what's happening with investment in the apparatus of democracy. Excellent article in The Hill, which is uh, very often leads a conservative paper, an excellent editorial, uh, or maybe just letter, saying that phil philanthropy, which right now only spends, what, one-tenth of one percent on democracy, could help save democracy, if invested in democracy. That ultimately is where I land. Paul from Glenside, Pennsylvania, speak your piece. The whole thing about the crown and the British uh, system of government and whether it should be eliminated or not, you're really onto something. I don't know if you. Thank aware goodness. Of it, but Somebody's with me. Go ahead, Paul. <laughs> there's several books written by people in England who are sick and tired of the royalty and the aristocracy over there. Basically, one of the books is called Who Owns Britain by a guy named Cahill. And a more recent one, Who Owns England by a guy named Shrubsoul, which sounds like a real British name. But the bottom line is almost 70% of all of the ground in England, 40 million acres, is owned by like a third of a percent of the population. Like the Duke of Westminster, the Church of England, the, the royal family in Buckingham Palace, literally own hundreds and hundreds of thousands of acres personally, and these other dukes and duchesses, and whatever they are over there. I can't keep barons. Yeah, and, and, the, um, and, and to be clear, the folks, who say, the folks who say it's ceremonial, it's not like, it's not like the, the Queen of England is a paid actress, you know, marshalling resources owned by the people. To be clear, she owns that stuff, and she's allowed to pass it and, and, and live a, a, and live a government-supported life. Yeah, their fortune is in the billions of dollars. They get rent. You can't buy land in England. All those office towers that are going up, land is capital. And what they get from people is a return on that capital. They yep. never give up the capital. They say, don't dip into the capital. They haven't given up the land. These people have owned land since pre-capitalist times, when land was everything. They haven't relinquished that. So today... All their wealth and the power in England to develop their economy rests in the hands of an even smaller group of people than we see in the United States. And this, to me, is the big fight. This is why, this is why I bring it up. It's partly because I think it's fun, but it's also because like, I, th I think you're on to something, Paul. And that is that the big fight, really since the Magna Carta, has been whether ownership, whether owning stuff at the point of a spear or a sword or a gun or just everybody accepting it as a norm, whether Think owning stuff should be power, in the war over there. or consent of the governed is power. And we got to be on the side of consent of the governed. Paul, thank you so much for calling. Really appreciate it. All right. Jeff from San Francisco, you win the Most Patient Listener Award. Your call is on a different topic, but an interesting one. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, well, I think it, it's, it coincides with what I think really happened with the revolution is we had a banking system, a public banking system in Pennsylvania that was working very well. And the revolution started because they wanted to destroy it. And the Bank of England wanted to invade us, which they did. I don't know. They might go into it. But right now there's a bill going on AB 857 in, before the California Senate for a public bank in California. You think it's got a chance? Which I think it's, oh, I think it's got a great chance. You know, I'm sure big. The housing bills, the housing bills just went down in California, didn't they? 
I could not tell you that. I need to look that up. I shouldn't just spread that rumor. That was, uh, but 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 my impression was some of the housing advocates' bills just died in the died in the legislature. My fear about banking, and you're right. I have insufficiently connected this. Right? Do you think about if we take my simplistic? Uh, breakdown of the power struggle over the last several hundred years as a struggle between concentrated ownership as the prime as the uh, prime mover of power versus sort of human beings getting together and figure out how we make things work for one another and with one another that the that property ownership and banking are essentially two big uh, pools of capital and control and that if you could have if you could transfer some of that I mean, without even you know without even talking about means of production etc if you just could make sure the banking industry wasn't entirely uh, a, a, a tool of a concentration strategy then you might actually be able to rebuild a middle, middle class and make democracy work a little bit better I mean, it, it's not a small thing working for public banks and that's one of the reasons I'm so concerned that even in a place that has uh, a democratic trifecta, both chambers, the legislature and the governor, that, you know, lobbyists have been making friends for a long time will say, yeah, you got to kill this bill. Yeah, well, you know, it, it went through bo- uh, both houses in 2011, right after, you know, the big fiasco and, and uh, Jerry Brown didn't sign it. How, and and did, he, did he offer a non-signing statement? Because this is my concern, right? To, to pass I something. don't could not say exactly, but I, I know I've looked that up and, and it went through and he didn't sign it. And which is like, you know, we're the fifth largest economy in the world. This right. is huge. You know, one less thing, Germany with public banking has, they're like 40% renewable now. Yeah. And that's not that sunny a country. Yeah. Imagine what California could do. And they say, oh, you can't afford the high speed rail and, you know, and all that stuff. No, California with its so mind much. to it, California with put its mind to it can afford almost anything at once. It certainly can afford its, its most important priorities. The, uh, but this is my, I mean, I know that, uh, I, I know that I'm just a bill, taught us all how a bill becomes a law, but this is an important thing for us to know because one of the things I am hoping that my, you know, when I participate here, it's in the hope that all of us will participate a little bit more, that you'll find something in your local community, you'll find something in your state, some issue you're passionate about where you can have some impact. If each of us have a little bit more impact, all of us collectively can have a much bigger impact. And therefore, the following kind of thing is really helpful to know. It's a lot harder to pass something than it is to keep something from getting passed. Okay, little, little quick lesson. In order to pass something, you got to win five times generally. You got to win in committee and on the floor in the House if it started in the House. You got to win in committee and on the floor of the Senate if it started in the House. Flip that if it was started in the Senate. And then you got to get a governor to sign it. You got to go five for five in order to pass it. To stop it, you just have to go one for five. Committee or floor, or committee or floor, or the executive. This is Tom Hartman's show. We're in this together. Many investors are asking, how long will this economic bubble last? When the inevitable crash takes place, what will that look like for your retirement? Will you have enough time to rebuild, or are you currently looking for ways to safeguard your existing portfolio? If the worst happens, it won't just be the markets and real estate. With the Fed's nonstop money printing, a dollar collapse is even more concerning. There are simple charts the Federal Reserve provides to help us investors make educated decisions. Google the FRED chart on the purchasing power of the dollar and look at the data yourself. Also take notice that the last 100 years of recessions have consistently occurred within 10 years from each other. The last recession was in 2008. What does that tell you? Gold and silver are statistically the best hedge against volatile markets and economies. Call my friends at ITM Trading at 1-888-OWN-GOLD. Ask them for their free gold protection guide and protect your future while you still can. Call 1-888-OWN-GOLD. That's 1-888-OWN-GOLD. It is time for us to welcome our friend Bob Nay, Talk Media News, TalkMediaNews.com, to tell us what's happening in the world. Hello, Bob. How are you? We're hearing one more time about Iran and how the president is willing to talk to Iran. Of course, the president is still in the United Kingdom, but he did an interview over there, and there were different issues he raised, but the one that got the top of the headline is that President Trump said he's open to talks with Iran, but he wouldn't rule out military action against the country. So he's still, you know, saying the possible military action. But what we know, Jefferson, if we're looking at this whole history of Iran after the president canceled the Iran nuclear deal, which then allowed for his national security advisor, John Bolton, who's never met a war he didn't like, 
to be able to say, wow, the Iranians are going to develop nuclear weapons because, of course, we canceled the deal, and therefore there's, in our minds, nothing to restrict them from developing nuclear weapons, although they are still part of the deal with the Europeans. So having said that, this got right up to the edge, and the way I've analyzed it, and friends I've talked to also in D.C., I think they would agree that the National Security Advisor, John Bolton, convinced the President of the United States that, hey, remember how you threatened Kim Jong-un, and he talked with you? You can do the same thing to the Iranians, which doesn't work with the Iranians. And now the President's trying to back this off a bit with his own Secretary of State, Pompeo, on Sunday, saying, well, we're willing to talk with no pre conditions, which is a complete change from the Trump administration's policy of trying to sanction everything about Iran, including the air they breathe. I mean, it reminds, I would say, it really does remind me of Obamacare. And I know that seems like a weird connection. But when they tore down the Iran deal, when they tore down Obamacare, they didn't have a better plan ready. In fact, in large part because the Obamacare was drawn pretty closely from the Mitt Romney plan in Massachusetts from the longtime sort of Republicans' best idea to create a health care exchange. Similarly, when they dumped the Iran deal, it wasn't because they had, oh, no, here's a better deal in place, but just because they thought that Obama was the poisonous tree, they had to destroy the fruits of the poisonous tree. What do you think they think they can negotiate that would be better? Or what do you think there would be a better deal? Some say they don't even want a deal. All they want and all Netanyahu wants is U.S. military intervention in Iran. Uh, maybe you're more optimistic than that. Do you think there is an objective that is clarified? And if so, what do you think that objective or those objectives might be? There is but one objective, in my opinion. Now, I've lived in Iran. Uh, 1978, and in Congress, I think as you know, Jefferson, under President Clinton and Bush, I was involved with Democratic and Republican members on the Iran issues. So yeah, I've seen this, you know, a long time. At that point in time in my life, I met John Bolton, who, you know, has made it crystal clear he wanted to pre-bomb Iran. The initiative and the objective, to answer your question, is to have a war with Iran. That's what John Bolton wants. That's what Netanyahu wants. And that's what Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia want. Of course, they want us to do it. You know, uh, And so that's the objective. And what happened here, I think, again, President Trump thought that he would get the Iranians to talk. He followed Bolton's advice. Now, Bolton didn't care because if he could get them up to the brink of war, that would be okay with John Bolton. Again, I'm not making this up. He has publicly said, you know, he wants to preeminently bomb Iran just in case, basically. He's been saying this for 20 years. So that's the motive, Jefferson. Now the president himself, through sources we know, last week said that Bolton has tried to talk him into about three wars already. Yeah. So that was the motive. It was not about trying to get the Iranians to negotiate. There was nothing in negotiation tactics in Bolton's mind of doing this. Nothing. Can we play rampant speculation? As you imagine the debates within the Oval Office now with Bolton and the others, reporting ended up indicating back in the day it was sort of Colin Powell was the one who was ended up being the lone voice, but was to some degree an oppositional voice. As I recall, was even the New York Times are saying, well, Colin Powell is essentially operating as the opposition party within right. the White House. Can you offer us any speculation about the power dynamic, the discussion dynamic? I mean, some of my thought, if you want to be, well, I don't say my thought, if you want to be really conspiratory, you could say, well, maybe it's intervention for foreign power. Who's on the side of non-intervention at this point? Well, on the side of non-intervention, and they've communicated this to the White House, I'm sure, are the Europeans. Yeah. I mean, literally, the Europeans across the board are on the side of non-intervention. There's no the Tony White Blair this time. No, no. Former Tillerson, he got fired, and yeah. Chief of Staff Kelly, he's gone. Right. Those were on the other, of not intervening. Bob Ney, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Jefferson. Talk Media News, talkmedia.com. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Show. We're coming to the big, big finish. Uh, for my quick thoughts, I do think, and I'll talk about it more tomorrow, that we should be prepared for a 2020 recession. We had some base notes. We did have, a, I thought, a pretty fun conversation about the monarchy. And yes, I will embrace my view that I think that there should be an abdication of the crown, a removal of the monarchy. Also want to give a shout out to our caller, I think his name was Andrew. I'm pretty sure it was Andrew who suggested what 
they should do, what Prince William should do when he becomes King William is work for our Constitution so that Great Britain finally has a Constitution and have it be a pro-democracy Constitution and then abdicate the crown and as part of that Constitution abolish the monarchy. Couldn't agree more. I thought it was a better idea than mine. I'll just finish with gratitude. I'll be with you in the next two days. If you got thoughts, you can tweet at me. You can even email me at jeffersonsmith at gmail. Want to say thanks to CK, uh, who emailed me her best pride memory in 1970 or 80, living in Berkeley in a communal house. Living in it was me and five guys. The gay roommate was the only one who cleaned besides me. We were good friends. A long-haired hippie gay male had a motorcycle, went to pride in the Castro. Both of us dressed in drag. Me in suit and tie looking dapper. John dressed female drag, even shaved his legs and wore heels. So much fun. I will never forget it. Carol in South Carolina would also love to hear your pride memories. Understand that we're all in this together. That means bending the arc of history towards justice. And therefore, if you've got somebody who's been discriminated against in your community, you should be on their side. That doesn't always mean being out in front. Very often that means being behind, but being behind in a supportive way. We love you. You're priceless. Definition of priceless, worth a lot, not for sale. I'm Jefferson Smith. This is the Tom Hartman Show. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.